This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. During the congressional recess, neither of Colorado's U.S. senators held in-person town halls. But on Wednesday, Republican Cory Gardner was on the phone from Washington, D.C., taking questions from constituents. The 45-minute session came just before he was to meet with President Trump. Senator Gardner said it was important for him to, quote, carry Colorado voices and concerns to the White House. Colorado Matters has requests in to speak with both senators to pose our own questions. For now, highlights from Gardner's telephone town hall. And there's a transcript of the whole thing at CPRnews.org. The first question was about Russia. We are going to begin with a question from Marilyn. This was submitted on our website. Do you support an independent investigation into Russian interference in our election? And if not, why? Thank you, Marilyn, very much for the question. I have supported an investigation into Russia. In fact, I have gone even further than most have. I believe we ought to create a a separate select cyber committee uh, that will look into the Russian allegations. Uh, This is something that we're going to see more of. It's unacceptable that uh, the Russians uh, tried to interfere with our election, which we know they did. There's no doubt they tried to interfere. Uh, And that's why I have been very public about uh, a select committee on cyber to investigate the Russian hacking. We also, I think, have to make sure that we pass legislation to create a cyber a permanent cyber committee in the United States Senate to make sure that we continue to investigate these and other challenges to our nation's security. Later, another constituent, Jim in Lakewood, last names weren't used, questioned Senator Gardner's support of President Trump's cabinet nominations. You ran as a moderate Republican and even voted for a candidate other than Trump. Since the inauguration, you have voted with the Trump administration 100% of the time. You represent a state that went blue in the election. How do you justify your votes? Well, thank you for that. Uh, Look, I think it's important that the president have the people around him that the president uh, nominates. Uh, That's true of President Barack Obama. In fact, if you look at my vote on um, Loretta Lynch, uh, President Barack Obama's uh, attorney general, I received a lot of heavy lobbying to vote a cloture vote. Cloture is a fancy way of saying to cut off debate and allow the nomination to reach the floor. Uh, Now, even though I disagreed with many of the positions that Loretta Lynch uh, has taken and and took as attorney general, uh, I believed that the president had a right to that nomination making the floor, and so I voted to end debate. Uh, And so uh, elections have consequences. Had it been Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders who were elected to president, uh, I'm sure I wouldn't have liked uh, some of the positions that the cabinet members took, uh, but uh, the elections have consequences, and uh, those officials would have been uh, confirmed. Gardner went on to say he has openly disagreed with the new president, for example, on sanctioning Russia. I've been a firm supporter of encouraging and making more uh, Russian sanctions enacted. I've been somebody who stood up against the uh, cyber attacks that Russia perpetrated against this country, called for clear investigation, making sure that we never stand for that. Uh, I objected to uh, the accusation that we're three to five million people who voted illegally in this country. There's no evidence of that. Uh, And I've said that multiple times on national television. Uh, I objected to the president's executive order and overreach. So we'll continue to do what I believe is right for the people of Colorado. During the telephone town hall, a woman named Heather in Littleton asked Senator Gardner about the Affordable Care Act and what would happen to people with pre-existing conditions if the law was eliminated. Heather made a point to say she wasn't being paid to pose the question, That was a nod to a claim Gardner made that some of the people calling his office were paid to do so. Heather explained that her daughter has a pre-existing condition and that in the past, her family was denied insurance coverage. There are people that I hear from, like you, Heather, each and every day, 
people who are concerned about pre-existing conditions. Uh, I spoke to a parent whose uh, very, very young child had a heart condition, uh, and they were very concerned about the pre-existing condition. Uh, and so uh, this is a, something that's near and dear to my heart. Look, I'm going to tell you a very personal story. Uh, over the past couple of years, my mom survived breast cancer. Uh, over the past several weeks, my father has been in and out of the hospital. When our daughter was uh, turned one years old, or about to turn one year old, she was diagnosed with a macrocystic uh, vascular encephalopathy. Uh, these are things that are very near and dear to me that we get right. Uh, I think most of the debate that you hear from Congress is, how do we make sure people with pre-existing conditions have coverage? Uh, I haven't heard anybody say we're going to get rid of uh, pre-existing conditions coverage. We want to make sure that people have the opportunity to afford uh, the insurance that they have with pre-existing conditions. And so this is an argument about access because if we increase affordability, then we have access to the kind of health care that people with pre-existing conditions uh, are, are fighting and striving for. Whether it's you, whether it's your child, whether it's my parents, these are important issues that we get right. Uh, over the past six years, we've seen a very partisan debate. Now is a chance for Republicans and Democrats to come together to put something in place that will lower the cost of care, increase the quality of care, and do so in a way that we can all be proud of. Too many people lost their insurance. Too many people can't use their insurance. We can do better. And I think it's very important that we recognize that just because we have it doesn't mean that we can't do better. There was little room for follow-up questions in this telephone town hall. Another question dealt with foreign aid and defense spending. Will you support an increase in the international affairs budget? Why or why not? You know, I have uh, supported various increases in international aid budgets, particularly as it relates to Israel and others. Uh, in fact, if you look at the foreign aid budget, uh, it represents a very small percentage of, uh, of our federal budget. We do tremendous good with the dollars through uh, foreign aid, uh, whether it's preventing HIV AIDS around the globe, uh, whether it's providing uh, opportunities uh, for uh, Africa to electrify. Uh, one of the big initiatives Congress has pursued is the Electrify Africa or the Power Africa Act. Uh, this is an incredible way for the United States to show the goodwill and good intentions of the American people uh, without doing so at the, the barrel of a gun or the bottom of a bomb. Uh, we have to recognize, too, though, that we have some of the lowest levels of equipment in uh, our Navy and Air Force uh, since World War I, World War II levels. Uh, and so we do have a very significant crisis at hand when it comes to national security, how we're going to make sure that we're protecting uh, the people of this nation uh, and uh, doing that with the equipment that not only protects our security, but gives the men and women on the front lines of freedom the ability to protect and defend themselves. Because if they don't have the tools, if they're robbing parts off of an, of an airplane so they can keep the other airplane running, shame on us for not giving our men and women the ability to defend themselves while they're defending us. Some context here. President Trump has called for an increase in military spending, but cuts to the State Department. The Pentagon's budget has shrunk in recent years, but the U.S. still spends more on defense than any other country, according to CNN Money. Also in the telephone town hall, Colorado's Republican U.S. Senator Cory Gardner answered a question about marijuana. Recreational and medical pot are legal in the state, but not federally. Naturally, the new attorney general came up in short order. I've done a great deal to stand up for Colorado's uh uh, in this industry on this, and I think most people recognize that when this ballot initiative came through, uh, I, like Governor Hickenlooper and others, had opposed the ballot initiative. Uh, but once the people of Colorado supported it, uh, you know, the founders of our country designed the states to be laboratories of democracy, and Colorado finds itself in the heart of the laboratory. 
Uh, and that's what I have explained to everyone. I've introduced legislation to uh, decriminalize the, the banking of, uh, for marijuana industry. I've introduced legislation to uh, make sure that we uh, allow medical marijuana to be delisted or decriminalized, however you want to say it, uh, descheduled, uh, making sure that uh, the cannabinoid oils, uh, Charlotte's Web and others, uh, are available across the country. Uh, prior to the confirmation of uh, Jeff Sessions, I had a long and lengthy visit with Jeff Sessions about uh, his views, and it was in uh, that conversation where I believe uh, he said that he would not make this a priority, which was at odds with, or at least it seems to be at odds with what Sean Spicer said. We've asked the White House for clarification on this matter, and we'll continue uh, to pursue what I believe is in uh, the, the best interest of Colorado as they stand up for uh, this issue. Spicer is the White House press secretary. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has obviously been in the news for other reasons, because it surfaced that he met twice with the Russian ambassador to the U.S. prior to the election. Sessions now says he'll recuse himself from any current or future investigation of Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election. So you heard there highlights of Senator Gardner's Teletown Hall Wednesday. Read a transcript of the full event at cprnews.org. We're told nearly 10,000 people listened in on the call. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A memorial to victims of the Aurora Theater shooting is a step closer to reality. The 720 Memorial Foundation has selected four artists out of more than 150 submissions to create a design. Heather Dearman is the foundation's vice chair. Her cousin, Ashley Moser, was paralyzed from the neck down in the 2012 attack. Moser lost her six-year-old daughter and unborn child. Heather, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. And uh, that's a lot of loss. I'd like to start with how Ashley's doing nearly five years later. Ashley's doing as good as could be expected. Um, she's in some college courses now, which is great. And she's able to um, be kind of independent because she has a, a van that she can drive around. Um, she's been coming to a lot more family events, which is great for all of us because we love to see her. She's such an inspiration. There was a time where you were just not seeing her as much. Yes, definitely. Um, I'm sure everyone, you know, feels how they would be in her shoes, and it's very devastating. So we all understand that she's going to have her ups and downs. Why is a monument important to you, important to the family? We really want to honor the loved ones that were lost, but we also want to show everyone the resilience and the strength of the survivors and thank the community that came together to make this a possibility. So you see this both as a recognition of the dead, but also of those who survived the attack. Yes, definitely. So when we were doing the call to artists, we knew that they would have a a big project ahead of them to be able to create something that can convey both of those things. Yeah. Um, we are going to have seating elements throughout the garden, um, probably boulders that 13 boulders to represent each of the 13 victims that will have the victims' names on it and let each of the families of those 13 have some say in maybe what goes on that and what kind of flowers are around it so that those seating elements will be more of the 
memorial to the lives lost. The major art piece that we're looking for this artist for will be a bigger, we have a bigger vision for, for strength and resilience and hope. So you've come with some of your own vision and you're asking artists to bring theirs. Yes. Tell me where the memorial will be and how you decided on the location, because I imagine a lot goes into that. Yes. Yeah, so um, I wasn't on the board when the amazing thought came about that the city of Aurora would donate the land that they already had for the um, Waterwise, Waterwise Garden that's in front of the city building off of Chambers and Al- Alameda. So they had a blank slate there, and they were generous and kind enough to let us have the land to build the memorial on. And that's not very far from the theater, isn't that right? Right. And so um, it's just in in view of the theater. I mean, it's down in a berm, so you really can't see the marquee of the Century 16. But it's interesting because if you visit the city building, if you look to the west, you can see the the theater. And then now when you look to the east, you'll be able to see our memorial. Do you think that's important, that proximity? It is very important um, to the families that we've been working with and, and the people on our board because it shows that we've moved on and that we're stronger than the incident that was there. The call to artists said that the 720 Memorial Foundation wants to avoid advancing themes that are controversial or political. Why? Well, we don't want that incident to define us. We don't want it to define Aurora. Um, None of us feel like that we wanted this to be a platform for anything like that because when it all comes down to it, everyone just wants to heal and have hope and have a human connection with people. And when when the when they had the makeshift memorial across from the theater, there was so many people who came and shared, you know, prayers and hopes and thought and, and left items there showing that they cared about us and they that was more than, you know, political views or anything. Nobody left signs about, you know, change gun laws at that memorial. Nobody wants to associate what happened and what continues to happen with any of that. Earlier this year, fine arts critic Ray Rinaldi wrote that the memorial should, quote, call out violence for what it is, senseless. It should question easy-to-get rifles, condemn movie horrors for the enablers they are. It should not avoid politics or neutralize madmen or pretend evil doesn't exist. Do you think there's any any whitewashing going on here? No, not at all. I mean, that happened. It's true. And there are other forms that people, even some of the family members, use to forward that agenda. And that was their calling. But that's not what our calling was. We we connected with each other for a reason. And we have been experienced along the way all of the love and support that we've gotten from the community. And we know that our loved ones wouldn't want us to dedicate something to those agendas. They want us to live our lives and find peace and connect with something greater than ourselves. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with Heather Dearman. 
She's on the 720 Memorial Foundation, uh, which is moving along in building a memorial to the victims, the survivors, and the dead in the Aurora Theater shooting um, massacre. And, you know, as we've said, four finalists have been chosen to come up with a design. One is Kentucky-based sculptor Dow Blumberg. Uh, Here he is being interviewed about his Nevada State Veterans Memorial. Uh, This is in Las Vegas. It features 18 seven-and-a-half-foot-tall figures. It's it's a monumental feeling, and that's what we want here. It's just this something you can't escape, something that will humble us. I want to say that some of his work is already in Colorado, in Aurora and Adams County, Another artist who made the cut is Ted Clausen from Massachusetts. He's done a lot of public art. Sculptor Jim Gallucci is based in North Carolina, and in a 2010 interview, he said public art brings people together. It gives them that, I call it common ground, where people can meet, greet, exchange. And finally, multimedia artist Nobuho Nagasawa lives in New York, and here she is speaking at a TEDx event in 2013. I'm an artist who creates an environment in an architectural space. I'm interested in materials and sensorial properties and human perception. I think about space and time and people coming together in these spaces. We have linked to these artists' pages at cprnews.org if you'd like to learn more about them. Can you share a specific example of one of their works that really appealed to you? And I'm not asking you to pick it a favorite at this point. I realize you have a whole process ahead of you. Yes, thank you. Um, Well, Dow Blumberg actually has art um, at the park right behind my house. And um, my children have played on those sculptures of birds. And it was interesting to me that he was one of the people who applied. And, you know, just that in-flight, in-motion type of sculpting was amazing. Um, Jim Gallucci, he his art is like a gateway, and it like invites people in, and it has um, curves to it, like circular, beautiful things. Um, Ted Clausen, a lot of the pictures that he showed were actually of memorials, which you know more like war memorials where there's just walls with names, and and though we don't want something like that, it was his statement that spoke to us. He used quotes and things from our. Um, loved ones that he couldn't have just found in one article. So he really went into researching it, and he said he was open to doing new things. So, and then for um, Nabohu, um, all of her art was different. It wasn't all the same kind of sculptures. And her statement really spoke to us because she really understood how that she needed to engage the community as well as the loved ones and and the way that she was going to work to do that. And we are very interested to see her new ideas. What do you think is the timeline for choosing a finalist? Or I don't know, is it possible you somehow blend multiple artists into this? I'm sorry, I looked so shocked when you said that right now, because I have five kids and two of them at separate times had suggested that. And it's interesting because 
there's not just one story that came out of this whole tragedy. So having them all work together is an interesting concept. Mm. But um, you never know. I mean, like, we're just excited to meet them. We're meeting them at the end of the month, and um, we're going to interview them, and they're going to interview some of the community and the first responders. And we have plans for them to go look at the archives of all the items left at the memorial, and we'll just see how it happens and how things come together. When would you like a memorial uh, up? Um, whenever it's supposed to be. Every time anything has happened throughout this process, it, it always happens when it should be. I mean, I know Roberta Bloom from Martin Public Places um, suggested it would probably be done by um, late May of next year. Late May of next mm-hmm. year. But we're hoping to have them present final or their proposals at the end of May. All right. So your your 720 Foundation has raised more than $250,000 so far towards this effort. You're doing a a dance of glee there at the amount raised. (laughs) I want to say just before we go that the Columbine Memorial has had some deterioration over time. And and so there's this question of whether that money will also go to maintenance. Can you answer that just briefly? Yes, definitely. We're still raising money because there's going to be a lot of things that we need to raise money for besides just the piece of art, like you said, maintenance and upkeep and, you know, other elements that we may want to add to the garden. So that'll be a part of the plan. Yes. Do you picture yourself visiting this place often? Oh, my gosh. Maybe three times a day I work in the building, in the city building, and I look at it every day. And I'm definitely going to find time to go there a lot. I want to thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Heather Dearman is vice chair of the 720 Memorial Foundation. As we've said, they've narrowed to four the number of artists who will submit designs for a memorial to the victims of the Aurora Theater shooting. And to the survivors, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. He's a big name in contemporary art, Jean-Michel Basquiat, and a new exhibition in Denver sheds light on his life and career. He's best known for his street graffiti and large-scale paintings. But as CPR arts reporter Corey Jones explains, his pieces show how he used an apartment as his canvas. Most of the pieces on display at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver belong to Alexis Adler. And when she takes my call, she's just climbed the stairs to her apartment. Hold on. Yeah, no worries. Situate myself here. Adler lives in a sixth-floor apartment in New York City's East Village. This is the same place Adler shared with Jean-Michel Basquiat nearly 40 years ago. She was a budding biologist fresh out of college. He was a 19-year-old promising artist. Adler says it was a busy and creative period for Basquiat, her boyfriend at the time. He'd stay up all night working on different ideas. We didn't have canvases, but we had walls and floors and stuff that he'd bring up from the street and paper. This exhibition in Denver captures an intimate look at the artists during their brief time together. Adler's collection includes pages filled with Basquiat's writings and drawings, as well as photographs she took of him. It's a dream come true for me because I really wanted to share this with people. The exhibition begins in a small gallery. That's Nora Burnett Abrams. She's the curator at MCA Denver. And we're surrounded by walls covered in 
in graffiti with a variety of colors and shapes and symbols and text. The wallpaper shows what it actually looked like inside the rundown building where Basquiat and Adler called home. Graffiti covered the walls and stairwells. That's how Basquiat got his start. He'd earned an underground following as part of a street art collaborative called Samo. Basquiat often used black spray paint to write words and phrases in a signature all-caps font. And he was kind of legendary in the neighborhood. That early anonymity Basquiat had with Samo didn't last long. Abrams says Basquiat's meteoric rise helped turn him into the mythic figure we know today. Making wildly large amounts of money, becoming an international art star, really, collaborating with Andy Warhol, and then his star burnt out. Jean-Michel Basquiat died of a heroin overdose in 1988. He was 27. The artist's death has spawned a mystique. There are documentaries and even a Hollywood movie about Basquiat. And last year, one of his paintings sold for more than $57 million. This exhibition at MCA Denver captures the time between his teenage years and his superstardom. It's work that's never been shown in public. It's called Basquiat before Basquiat. We don't know that he's going to become this amazing painter. We just know that he was always making. He was always curious. There are actual objects Basquiat painted on, like a Pepto-Bismol bottle. Then there are photos of other things he turned into abstract pieces of art like a refrigerator with the words grape jelly near a handprint and a paint smear. He's painting on a found television set. This is a painting that he made on the wall of his bedroom. So everything was ripe for him. In another room, you'll find clothing he would paint on and then later sell. The way he earned his share of the rent, which at the time was $80 a month, was by making these sweatshirts and T-shirts and postcards that he would then sell on the street. Throughout the exhibition, you see how Basquiat played with different motifs, from words to symbols. Some of these are now signature elements in his work. You see these zigzag lines, and those will become the top of a crown. They recur as a mouth or as hair. There's a raw quality to Basquiat's art that many describe as childlike. But Abrams says, don't let that fool you. He was sifting and sorting through any material that he could find, whether it's popular culture, advertising, comic books, the history of art, and science textbooks. Remember, Alexis Adler studied science in college. So some of Basquiat's art reflects this in the form of charts and graphs. Adler says her collection serves as a snapshot of when they lived together. It's a strange and wonderful place to be in, but... Here I am. I found myself sharing my world, my life, and the life we shared together. Adler says her apartment was Basquiat's first permanent address after he ran away from home. This apartment was his laboratory, and Adler hopes to see Basquiat's creative experiments travel to other museums nationwide. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. The exhibition Basquiat Before Basquiat runs through May 7th at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver. You can see photos of his works at cprnews.org. Now let's hear someone else who knew Jean-Michel Basquiat well, Denver photographer Mark Sink. Corey visited Sink's home to see mementos and photographs. Mark, let's start with this image here. It seems very powerful. Basquiat is in the middle of the frame. He has a kind of distant gaze and, uh, of course, some of his distinctive writings behind him on the wall. This was a large painting at the French Pacomian Gallery 
in New York. I was there to photograph his work, and he came up, and I happened to have my big old view camera out and got a picture of him. He picked this in particular to stand in front of. The words behind a man dies was not significant until he died couple weeks later. It says man dies and that wasn't intentional in any way. You didn't frame it that way. No, I did not frame it up specifically of those words. What do you remember about Basquiat from the time when you took this image? It was a difficult time when later on in his life he was under great pressure by art dealers. He's pulled many directions. Uh, His work was becoming extremely valuable then. So it was that rising star of someone becoming a superstar and how you deal with that with your friends. And I saw a lot of that frustration and his struggle with drugs. And he had just been on a a loop of getting better out in Hawaii. And we were all celebrating he was back and his new show looked great. And it really was that kind of moment at the peak of his career. Jean-Michel Basquiat passed away of a heroin overdose. Uh, He was 27 years old. That happened just a a couple weeks after you took this photo. What went through your head when you found out that Basquiat died? It was a stunning shock. The same thing when Warhol passed away. It was just such a gigantic hole. Um, He was just such a free spirit, and he embodied that fully with every piece of work he made. Let's go back to the beginning of your time with him. How did you meet Basquiat? I was with my friend Robert Hawkins, a painter and good friend of his. We rolled out the door of a cafe. It was a late night, I gather. It was very late, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, this was 1981. And my friend said, John, hey. And I had no idea who he was. And... Uh, You just saw him standing there outside. He was standing next to a limousine, and uh, we went into the studio there on uh, Great Jones Street, and I just started asking, said, oh, you're a painter? And he said, yeah, and I started pulling one out of the racks, and there I started to realize, wait, I know, you're, wait, you're, uh... You had seen his works before. I I had seen his work before and recognized, you know, the crowns and the conic imagery. So at that point, I was drunk and a dumb Denver kid, and I said, will you paint me something? And uh, Jean-Michel said, sure. And he grabbed a red paintbrush sitting in a can of red paint and drew me a big red scorpion and crossed it out and wrote Scorpio and then took that piece of paper because it was dripping and the canvas we were looking at he used it to stamp prints of the scorpion down across the canvas which I've been looking for that canvas through my career he must have painted over it I've mm. yet to come across it and what happened to the uh, the print that he painted for you oh I think it probably sold for $30,000 or something mm. that I... mm. <laughs> so What kind of relationship did you have with him after that? What were your interactions like? I was always very jealous of him because he had the table full of beautiful girls and he was, you know, could get the table in the restaurant just in a second when he walked in the door. And he was always very nice to me. I shot a lot of his work on the side from his main paintings. Uh, He always had projects. I was there as a worker bee. It was business. It was business and... 
and a job to do to get his work documented. And so he drove me a little nuts at his studio while photographing him. He always would change him in the middle, climb around on the piece, soiling his clothes up and things. And, you know, a lot of times there's just lots of drugs quite a bit. Kind of shocking uh, that someone coming, that, okay, I'm not here. You know, and they're there to pay cash <laughs> for a piece, you know, like hundreds of thousand dollars in cash. Essentially know, for, under the table. Yeah. In the midst of it, I'm trying to figure out how to pay my rent. And just watching all the people that were leeching off of them. And that's what I prided myself in, just that I wasn't one of those people. My name is Corey Jones, arts reporter for CPR, and I'm here with Denver photographer Mark Sink. We are in his home. He's been nice enough to invite us in to chat about his memories with Jean-Michel Basquiat out in New York City. And Mark, what else do you have in your home? What other mementos of Basquiat? In general, I just have lots of scraps and pieces. Wherever he sat, he would scribble something out. Uh, I have hundreds and hundreds of uh, these large format transparencies of his work that I photographed in his studio. So did he pay you to take these shots? He never paid me. The gallery paid me. That's what I did for a living in New York. I photographed for a lot of the Soho galleries. It was a very exciting lifestyle, too. I didn't get paid very well, but to be able to go to the artist studio, that's why the job came so easily, is because I didn't get paid very well. So you have this stack of transparencies, uh, images that you took of Basquiat's work. Can you pull out a couple and and show us and, and tell us what stands out to you about them? Well, this one that's like a pack of cards just came out. Um, there's his golden crown, one of his, the back of the neck. This this is a huge piece. It's about six feet high by, that's probably 25 feet wide. Um, wow, big piece. With gold in the middle, uh, spine, a ladder going up the spine to the crown, the hand and arm with the red blood-like veins coming around. Very, very powerful piece. And, of course, he always puts his copyright signals <laughs> yeah, on yeah. there. Um, this is when he was working with uh, Andy Warhol and where they collaborated, which um, was not a match made in heaven. Um, they both had, you know, monster egos, and they both believed each other was helping each other's career. John michelle thought he was helping Andy's career and vice versa. They wanted credit. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but these are the very typical notebooks that he used, these black and white composition books. Um, I probably photographed 30 of these for him, and this one was made into a reproduction called Amateur Bout, um, but these were very typical of his poems and words. A lot of these these words are what you would come up across uh, when he was writing out in the streets. You know, these words, lover equals liar. There's, you know, a whole school of people that, you know, work in the power of the word. And he is one of them that were very catching and telling about his life and the culture. I photographed a lot of the scene, and I'm not sure I would have picked him as, you know, the just white-hot, on today, millennials, a whole new generation born... After he died, 
that he has this incredible influence on today. That is Denver photographer Mark Sink speaking with my colleague Corey Jones about the late contemporary artist Jean-Michel Basquiat. Again, there is an exhibition of Basquiat's work at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Denver. This is the sound of a Colorado-made instrument called the dobrato. The dobrato is a mashup of an acoustic guitar, a dobro, with a note-bending lever. Kent Viles Frankensteined this new instrument, those are his words, at a guitar store in Gunnison. The dobrato has caught on with some famous musicians, Jimmy Buffett, Tom Petty, and Michael Martin Murphy, to name a few. And a welcome to the program, Kent. Well, thank you, Ryan. It's really nice of you to have me. You've been a musician for most of your life. You have a music store with hundreds of guitars, banjos, mandolins, dobros. What made you think That's all correct. Yeah, what made you think that you needed to invent a new instrument? There there was a need here, I guess. Right. Well, you know, it was more of a curiosity for me at that point. This goes back about 6 years and I at that point was playing a resophonic style guitar and playing more blues oriented and maybe some more progressive finger styling guitar in different alternate tunings and I just thought it could be interesting to come up with another voice for the instrument. So I started uh, exploring the idea of putting a vibrato system on the resophonic guitar. Introduce us to these terms. I don't know what resophonic means. What does that mean, first off? Sure. So a resophonic guitar, they were basically invented in 1929. And at that point, guitars were very small guitars. They were called parlor guitars, and they were essentially just played in parlors in a real close proximity to the listeners, so they didn't project well. And the guitar was becoming more and more popular at that time, and people wanted to use them in the big bands and in dance bands, uh, but you frankly couldn't hear them. So there was kind of a call made out to the luthier industry that we need to come up with something loud. And and keep in mind, this is pre-electric guitars. So the Dopira brothers uh, were the ones who came up with the concept of a resophonic-style guitar, unique in the sense that it doesn't work like a standard steel string guitar. Uh, It has an aluminum cone underneath the strings, and that's what vibrates that produces the sound. And the result was, it was probably five times as loud as the guitars of that era. So it became hugely popular right away. Hmm. So you added even to that by creating the dobrato. And um, I, I understand you have one there with you. Can, can you I do. Can, yeah, give us an example of a sound it can make that, sure. you know, in, instruments that came before it cannot Right. Well, we'll just start with just the straight uh, resophonic guitar tone. Let me give you a little example. All right. So you can hear it has a bit of a metallic kind of sound, but it's a very cutting, edgy kind of tone. Okay. 
So my next step was when I mentioned that I wanted to add a vibrato to it. What the vibrato does is it allows you to loosen the tension on the strings, all the strings simultaneously. And uh, this piece was designed by Paul Bigsby uh, back in the 50s. And Paul was a motorcycle engineer and racer, and he had a close friend who was a guitarist. And at that time, the Hawaiian music was very popular. And Hawaiian music would use this wavering kind of sound and a slide type of sound. And he wanted to see if Paul could produce something for him for his guitar that he could replicate some of these sounds. So Paul designed this vibrato tailpiece. And the tailpiece consists of an arm, and all the strings are wrapped around one of the bars of the arm. So if I push down on the arm, it loosens the tension on the strings. If I waver the arm, it turns it into more of a vibrato kind of voice. Okay. And I'll let you hear how that works. On, on the vibrato, yes. So the vibrato is very similar to what you would do with your voice. So yeah. sometimes you want to sing with a very straight tone, but sometimes you want to add some vibrato. So you can add various amounts of it. Um, so you can make it very light or you can make it very deep, uh, depending on how far you depress the arm. So you've really walked us through all of the innovations that you carried on into the dobrato and what do you like most about the dobrados sound, what, what your instrument brings? You know, what I like about it is it just adds flavor to pretty much any style of play. The vibrato aspect of it um, can be used in virtually anything, just like you would add vibrato to your voice in any style of music. Uh, the, the other component, though, that I've uh, added to this instrument is a uh, feature called the B-Bender. Okay. This is a device that was actually introduced in the 1960s. It was designed by Gene Parsons and Clarence White. And what they were trying to do is replicate on a guitar some of the voicings you get out of a pedal steel guitar. Hmm. What it does is it pulls one string, one whole tone. So it's kind of the quintessential pedal steel sound, and I'll, I'll give you a demonstration in a second, but it's pulling just one string. So it's the same thing that a foot pedal on a pedal steel guitar is accomplishing. And so if you'd like, I'd give you a little demonstration of that. Yes, please. The Debrado, once again, made in Gunnison, Colorado. Much of what you played has a, almost a mournful quality. Is it a sad instrument? And I, I say that lovingly, by the way. 
<laughs> I would hope not. Um, <laughs> you know, like I say, because it, it is used in many different styles of music. So what I was just doing was replicating the pedal steel kind of voicing. Yeah. But there's people who use it in jazz and blues and all styles of music and utilize the bender and the vibrato in ways that suit those styles of music. So it's very versatile. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Kent Viles from Gunnison, Colorado, the creator of the Debrado, sort of a mashup of guitar and dobro with a few other note-bending additions. You can actually see this instrument for yourself at cprnews.org. And boy, you have some big names among your customers, Jimmy Buffett, Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top, Tom Petty, Jason Isbell. Right, right. Yeah, how many of these do you make a year? Well, you know, to from the beginning, I started with the concept, but I hadn't developed my wood-bodied version of the instrument. And so I was purchasing uh, metal-bodied resophonic uh, guitars from a, a company in, in Texas, uh-huh. and I would go ahead and do the modification to turn them into what is now the Dobrado. So I, I sold about 120 of those instruments. But in the meantime, I was always prototyping and trying to perfect the wood-bodied version of it, because I knew that was the end game. The voicing of the wood-bodied instrument is much more versatile than the uh, metal bodies. Uh, metal bodies are very kind of one dimension, and that one dimension is very great. It's a great sound. It's great for very loud, robust blues. But the the wood body lends itself to all styles of music and has a little softer tone, a woodier tone, as you would imagine. Mm-hmm. And so how, how many of those do you make a year? So far, we've produced 38 uh, pieces. Uh, it's going to be a run of 100 pieces, and then we'll evaluate what we want to do moving forward at that point. Kent, how do how do musicians find out about you? Or do you go to them? <laughs> well, you know, one thing, <clears throat> pardon me, it's it's a unique enough design that it really stands out. Mm-hmm. And when I get these A-list players like Jimmy Buffett and Billy Gibbons and Mike Campbell and, and so forth performing on stage, that puts a lot of eyeballs on it, gets a lot of interest in it, and ultimately people will contact me that way. In Gunnison, Colorado, though, we're very tourist-driven in the summer, and for about five months out of the year, we get people traveling Highway 50 and going up to our beautiful Crested Butte area and so forth. And they stop in the shop, and, and many of them will just happen across it and, and be taken by it. But I've always worked with Corner Music out in Nashville, and uh, Corner Music really championed the product, and they put it in the hands of some big players. So uh, it's really just kind of that spinoff effect of 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 introducing it in a great environment like Nashville. Is the Debrado really hard to play? You know, I work so hard at making the whole mechanics of the instrument very ergonomically uh, simple to get around. So I find people who are hobbyists, definitely professionals, but if they sit down with it for literally a couple, three minutes, they get the concept. And it's designed to fit in your right hand, your, your strumming or picking hand, uh, very comfortably. And, and the movement of either the vibrato or the B-bend is a very simple motion. So actually, it doesn't take long to adapt to it. Interesting. Yeah, of course, instruments would need to be ergonomic to be simple to play. Kent, thanks for being with us. 
Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Ryan. Kent Viles of Gunnison created the Dobrado. We spoke in August of last year. See the instrument for yourself at cprnews.org.